uh, and you know the irony of the financial system we've built is wall street is the only place where you know you have a guy that drives a ferrari that gives his money to someone that takes the subway to work to manage his money Hello and welcome to Trillions. I'm your host, Elise Grace, and today I'm chatting with James Asquith, the youngest man to visit all 196 countries in the world. He is also a best-selling author, Forbes travel contributor, plus CEO and founder of Holiday Swap. James started his career as an investment banker and on this episode shares some interesting perspectives on the global economy, investing and business. At just 31 years old, he's had a jam-packed life and does not hold back from sharing some stories. Thanks for listening. James Asquith, thank you so much for joining me on the Trillions podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh, James, you are the CEO and founder of Holiday Swap. You've been to all 196 sovereign countries on the planet, and you're also an investment banker or ex-investment banker, we're yet to find out. Uh, You also have a really cool book, um, Breaking Breaking Borders, Travels in Pursuit of an Impossible Record. So let's get into the podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. So tell us about, tell us a little bit about, um, first of all, hol- Holiday Swap. So how did it come to be? What is it? We'll, we'll get into the, your backstory about your entrepreneurialism and investment banking, but tell us about Holiday Swap because everybody's really keen to hear about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it came around kind of after the backstory, as you say, uh, everything led up to, to founding the company. And when I'd done a lot of the traveling and I'd go and, I guess, sit on the news or go and sit on CNN, whatever it might be, uh, I'd always get asked the same question. And by people in general, if it was even just in a bar or something, people would say, that's amazing. I'd love to travel more, but I can't afford it. And the same question would always be coming up saying, how can we travel for cheaper? Mm. Um, And so, you know, time is money and they're interlinked and all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to create a platform that actually genuinely allowed people to travel for a lot less and uh, and that's what holiday swap is it's a you know a true sharing economy platform it genuinely saves people money it's a dollar a better night to swap your places i think we're in 185 countries now and cool. you know it's you look at some companies like airbnb and they're not really sharing economy you know the price of an airbnb in in the us for for some places is as much as 95% of the cost of an equivalent hotel and yeah. you know you have to go through the hassle of finding the key and not having a concierge or any of that and for almost the same price of a hotel, is it really worth it? And is it really what the company started at, which was, you know, people making 20, 30 bucks, a bit of extra money from a spare room in Berlin or Prague. And it was about the travel. And now it's kind of become about how people with capital can, you know, make money and gains from short term letting. And so the prices have gone up with it. So, you know, what we do, it really kind of is sharing. It's, it's between C to C and, and consumers deal directly with, with each other and, you know, it's called the travel Tinder by some people. There's nothing uh-huh. to do with dating, but, you know, people match up based on based on their properties. And, um, you know, that is the biggest cost of travel, which is the accommodation. If you think about it, yeah. you know, it's you really want to pay tons of money for a bed to sleep. And, and yeah, sure, there's some amazing hotels out there that you might want to go and stay in um, that add to the experience. But if you're going to New York City, for example, and Airbnb's banned in Manhattan, it's reflected by hotel prices. Uh, you know, you're paying four or $500 for a pretty average four-star hotel for a night yeah. just for a bed um so yeah that's that's kind of in a nutshell what we are and uh and i wanted to do it to to kind of actually create something that uh that allow people to, to to travel more yeah awesome i think it's an incredible concept james and i personally have stayed Thank in you. gorgeous hotels and i've stayed in airbnbs i've paid um 
yeah, all kinds of prices for all of these things. I've gotten great Airbnbs. And then recently during COVID, I stayed in a, a tent um, just for a getaway nice. in a gorgeous area, but it was uh, like 120 Australian to, for a tent. <laughs> but, um, you had to pay for a tent? Can yeah. you just take your own? Well, it was glamping, you know, it was glamorous camping. Ah, so. the, ah the glamping. It's actually looking like it's becoming pretty popular now again. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool, I must admit. But um, I see what you're saying, and I think it's an awesome concept. So um, I, I have... I um, I'll, it'd be interesting to see who I could match with with my property. Um, so yeah, yeah let's get let's let's get into the backstory because you have such an amazing story. You um, your entrepreneurial story started when you were twelve years old. So I really want you to share with my audience what you did as one of your first entrepreneurial ventures and and how that um transitioned into investment banking and and a little bit more of that story. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I don't really. I've come from a pretty humble background. My my parents always work their asses off for lack of a better phrase um you know for me and my sister and gave us everything so i'm so grateful for that yeah uh but you know that they could have had a lot more if they'd have taken i guess a different view and not put us through you know particular schools etc and that was everything that they contributed towards towards where me and like my sister would be schooling? but you know sorry private schooling you, yeah yeah exactly um and so it didn't really you know we didn't really have too much we took one holiday every year but you know i'm around people at private schools who are searching for what cars their parents are going to buy them at 16. i mean i never had a car so <laughs> it was like almost living in a very different world that i almost kind of like shouldn't have been in um but yeah. you know from from that at 12 i remember you know my parents almost ran out of money and uh, and i remember i went down the road and started washing cars at 12 years old with one of my friends and i was awful at it it got to the point where I think it's it's almost like modern business that people can relate to when people try and bargain with you. I remember at one <laughs> point someone tried to pay us in cream eggs, you know, the little mini yeah. Easter eggs. Yeah. Um, and I was like, no, even at 12, that was the point of my first experience of someone trying to barter with me. And I was like, no, you pay in cash. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we did that, saved up maybe, I don't know, a bit over a hundred pounds. And I remember going to my mum saying, hey, this might help with everything. And, uh, and I remember she was almost in tears and she's like, no. And she went and set up a bank account for me um you know with this 120 pounds or whatever it was and uh yeah i kind of almost became obsessed with this these were the days where it was like a, a book and you had the stamp of yeah, the, the amount in I your, remember that in your account and uh and i remember seeing that and i was like wow that's amazing like there's a number of an, I don't know, an asset next to my name i guess um so yeah i was always kind of very much into from that point wanting to do whatever I could, whatever little random jobs from like I don't know, working in a balloon shop to, uh, you know, working in uh, at, at cricket grounds when I was 15. And I think 15, I had three jobs. And I was just, yeah, I started working in bars and just saving as much as I could. I think the dream for me was I just wanted a nice house and, uh, and kind of that was it. Uh, and I got to 18. I set up like an events business when I went to university and, and that was good. That kind of worked out to be quite nice in terms of uh in terms of the money that came in from it but you know I, I got to a point where i was 18 and i had no interest in travel either and i saved up this money that i was thinking hey i can you know i'm going to go and put that into a house at some point and the financial crisis hit and i thought i knew what i was doing so you know i put uh i put all of this money into banking stocks basically at the lows yeah. and uh and it was it was phenomenal i you know tripled my money in two weeks and i was like i am the best i know what i'm doing i want to be an investment banker and then i sold at a certain point and and then when i sold like companies had rights issues the shares like went down 50 percent. i bought them back they doubled again i was like i am untouchable i'm the best thing ever <laughs> uh so i remember like at 18 and a bit i went and tried to buy a house with uh with all this money that i'd kind of made and saved up from it and uh 
and again, I was so naive to the fact that I remember this guy called me a week later and he was like, James, how are we proceeding with this? Because I put a bid in that got accepted on a house. Yeah. And I had no idea. And he turned around and, and, and all the money was still in the shares because I was like, obviously, I thought in my mind I was untouchable and everything I touched turned to gold. Uh, so I looked, I remember I said, yeah, give me like a week. I looked at my portfolio, it was down 10%. I was like, whatever, I'm so good, it'll be fine. Look the next day down another 10%, down 10%. And basically I lost almost all of it. Um, And it was a huge life lesson. You know, I might've been someone that I guess valued money differently now. And I have a, you know, I have a huge value of money for what it can do and facilitate. But, you know, in terms of materialistic stuff, you know, I I don't wear a watch. Like I'm very unmaterialistic in in terms of everything. The only money I really spend is on nice flights, but I spend a lot of my time on flights. So, you know, apart from that cars and stuff like that, it's, it's not really for me. I'm a pretty simple guy, but, you know, that could have been a moment where I'd have gone a very, very different direction uh, in terms of, you know, thinking in my mind because I'd had a good run, I guess, that I got it right a lot, that it was easy to make money without having, you know, some really difficult times too. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a good wake up lesson. And, you know, the money that was left from it, uh, I basically put into to going traveling. Well, actually, I, I went with my two best friends. We went to to Vietnam we volunteered and built some homes there and I just picked up the travel bug so you know I kind of spent the rest of it and worked as I went along in odd jobs and what I could do to to pay for the traveling I I didn't really have an ambition or an idea to go and visit every country that just came about as as I you know I maybe had been to a hundred countries and thought hey how many are there um and continue with the rest but at the end of the day like you know I still always had it in my mind that at some point I wanted to do investment banking and so I did that when I left university and I still had some countries to go so it was nice that I had a, a pretty liberal boss that just said uh, make sure you get to all of them because obviously a lot of people when they're going to finance and banking don't really have any holiday time at all so yeah uh, you know that was saying I guess the stars aligned quite nicely there but um, yeah I mean then then I kind of continued the traveling but went into I guess a different chapter of my life and into into investment bankings yeah so you were I think you you were watching it working at HSBC when you had that that nice boss um and um and yeah and he suggested that you do more travel so um how was it that you were you were able to get straight into investment banking and and um and what did you learn from investment banking because uh we we love on the podcast talking about investing and and some strategies there and and um obviously you value stocks and things like that if that's what you're investing in um so yeah give us some lessons from your investment banking days well, I mean, I guess I, I applied for a lot of jobs in different banks because of, you know, I guess the real life experience in terms of, you know, like I said, from 18, I'd made X amount of money and uh, and I'd lost X amount of money as why. Uh, but, um, you know, it was kind of a nice thing in terms of actually being able to turn around and say, yeah, sure. Like I've got the tick of the box of an economics degree in my education, which you need. And quite frankly speaking, was pointless. Uh, the degree I did at London School of Economics was I learned absolutely nothing from it. I ticked boxes, did the exams, but I never even turned up. That was when I was doing most of my traveling. Yeah. So I did everything online with it. Um, yeah, Wait, my, so my you, you were traveling was, most of your, your university days? Well, my second year, uh, I came back from my second year after being in Vietnam. And I remember being sat at the back of my lecture and everyone's saying, you know, my group of friends like, let's go to this bar and do that. And look, I had a great first year. I did everything that people think they should be doing and having fun in their first year. Um, but I just sat there and I thought my second year is going to be almost the same. I don't just want to go through university having, you know, this same experience. And because I was at university in London as well, it was almost, you know, central London. It was a very big, I didn't live the campus university life. So I kind of was envious of that in my first year when I go and see friends at different campuses. 
But I remember I closed my book 20 minutes into my first lecture when everyone's like, let's go to this bar. I remember I went back to my accommodation. I went to Heathrow Airport and, and I just fucked off for the next nine months. <laughs> um, so I didn't go to that was and then my awesome. third year, I didn't go to a single lecture either. Um, so, I, yeah, I kind of did it online. I came back. I slept in the library seven weeks before exams to catch up with it. When I say slept in the library, I literally slept in the library. There oh were bean bags and a shower. For seven so weeks. For seven weeks. Yeah, oh but, God. you know, I, I, I guess I got to see the world with it as well. Yeah, so, that's um, cool. you know, it's a tick of a box. And, and, you know, kind of skipping on from where I started just down the line, when I would have people that would I would hire in banking, you know, I'd have great CVs that came in that looked good on paper, but there's, a, you know, I'm sure you see this as well. Some of the dumbest people that I know look uh, like the smartest on paper. And then some people that might not have anything on paper are actually really, really life and street smart. Mm. So, you know, real world experience is massive. And again, I think the best education I have was traveling to every country. So, you know, I get to a point, I remember I hired some, some guy was working with me as a graduate when I was working on an equities desk for a little bit. And, uh, you know, the way he traded, it was pathetic. It was like he made money every single day and it really annoyed me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why, but it really did annoy me because he'd, he'd be so like specific and perfect. And there's, there's, you know, there is still a thing in trading and investment banking about using your gut instinct sometimes. And, and it doesn't matter how much you think you've got the numbers, the charts, everything right, your view, you can always be wrong. And the market can make you look so stupid for longer yeah. than you can sustain liquidity and be wrong uh, before you're right. And so this guy would just make a little bit every day, take trades, I put them on. And I remember I wanted him to buy something that I knew would lose money. I was like, you need to see how you are when you lose money. And the guy fell to pieces. He almost cried. I was like, that's not someone that I want to hire. Yeah. Um, you know, so kind of going back to when I first started at HSBC, you know, the majority of the trading floor uh, got fired uh, two weeks in. And so I remember I got handed like a management book of I was trading bonds at the time, uh, which was what I traded most of my career. I traded uh, corporate bond market. And, uh, and I sat there with this management book. I had no idea what was going on with it. Um, and, uh, you know, I probably lost $200,000 a day, every day for six months. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and, but, but everyone was losing and the market was an absolute mess. And this was in 2010, 11, which was actually the worst time, especially for, for, for bonds and credit. Um, you know, I was so clueless. I remember running to one of the guys who was like, just get rid of all this toxic rubbish on the book. And I remember there was a 100-year bond. And because the systems were so rubbish at HSBC, um, you know, I'd, I'd run over and be like, no, we don't have to get rid of it because it's maturing next week. It comes off the balance sheet because it yeah. was down as comma 11. And the guy's like, no, that's a 100-year bond. That matures in 2,111. I was like, oh, wow. Like trying to put like the numbers together, understanding what I was doing and trading was, was fun and interesting. But it was a massive kind of, hey, go do it. Um, yeah. So look, you know, I was, I really, it, it was fantastic for me. I had a great time at HSBC. I worked around some great people. Um, I've seen some pretty, pretty interesting things in the market along the way. And uh, a lot of stupid people as well. People that think that investment bankers and traders know what they're doing. Uh, certainly don't. You know, if I yeah. skip on to, I got headhunted by Deutsche Bank and I worked there. Um, I went there as a vice president when I was 25, I think. Um, Crazy. And, you know, you get to the point of the, the ECB's biggest bond buying program. And, you know, again, this was in 2015 and it just shows that nothing's right. So if you look at the markets right now, currently, for example, I'm leveraged short every single market, DAX, NASDAQ, S&P, Dow, you name it. I'm short all of them because it's wrong. Um, yeah. And markets have rallied just now and overnight and this morning. And, you know, you might sit there and be like, oh, my God, like I've lost a bit of money. I'll just increase the size of my short and sit there quite comfortably. 
um, because it's wrong and it will break eventually. And we saw this a few weeks ago. Oh, not even that, maybe a week ago. You know, the Nasdaq sold off by 600 points in a session because there is that panic in the market at the moment. And the things that, that drive things are, are, yeah, fear and greed index and people yeah. panic. And retail investors tend to lose money because they might put a trade on. It goes against them a little bit. And they're like, oh, no, I'm going to lose money. But a lot of the time, if you stick with it, I think you might be right. And this comes back to 2015 where I was convinced I was right. I went into the new year short and I think I was, I maybe had over a billion euros of short positions um, and no long positions. And you sit there and the market's collapsing for the first six weeks. And then the European Central Bank has the biggest bomb buying program and the market rallies. and I lose tons of money. All the money I made, I lost again. Um, and you sit there and you're like, it's not right. And you see it right now as well, where no one wants to let markets go down and market you, no one wants markets to collapse but markets should not be trading where they're at they should be 10 15 20 percent lower mm. um and there's some great opportunities out there to buy some more beaten up stuff but in general um i, I think that a lot of things are, are, are priced wrong um and and investing actually at this point now unless you want to go and be leveraged short which i think is the easiest trade ever that's not investment advice for anyone um <laughs> is uh you know, you, you go in and people. This is this is why seventy six percent of retail investors lose money because it's it's almost crowd sheet mentality, right? You see Amazon yeah. trading up, you see Tesla that's trading at ridiculous levels. Yeah. If I if I if I would short U.S. shares, I would short that so badly. Uh, it's just wrong and it's not common sense. They're like, yeah, and, and this is why the market's broke. It's like one and a half percent of U.S. car sales, and they're valued more than General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler combined. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's just nonsense. And yeah. it shows the world that we live in now, which, you know, so anyway, I can well, ramble on about this. All there's day. a lot of mom and, mom and dad investors. And um, and I'm really interested in in hearing you, whether or not you think that people should learn to invest themselves or whether they just hand over their, their fund to who they think is a good guy to manage their money. Like I'm, I'm of the opinion that, that it's wise to learn yourself and, and manage your own money. Um, and I, I, like I wouldn't know who, who to give my money to and I wouldn't trust anyone else than myself so are you are you in the same kind of belief system absolutely look the, the guys that would manage money and trade and most of them and i've seen firsthand are total morons um yeah. and, and you know the irony of the financial system we've built is wall street is the only place where you know you have a guy that drives a ferrari that gives his money to someone that takes the subway to work to manage his money. Yeah, I think, think it's about crazy how town. ironically weird that is. Yeah, you know, traders that I work around a lot of them, they, they can't go out and spend the money that they 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 portray that they might manage or that they, you know, it's it's not anywhere like it used to be. Bonuses not like they used to be, and it's this sheep mentality. And I saw that from people again back to 2015 because central banks were buying assets, they were buying assets. Now, right now, the irony of it which is this herd mentality and it's why people get burnt so badly when they have people managing their money is, you know, if for example, a, a, you know, a, a second outbreak of coronavirus comes right now, markets will likely rally this time because mm. people are expecting the biggest stimulus that's been so far to continue. And if central banks are buying assets uh, and interest rates are at zero, people are like bad news is good news for the markets. And that's completely screwed up in my opinion. You know, and, and what you're going to get from someone that manages your money as a fund, they're not going to go and put the time into, oh, I'll buy this, I'll sell that, I'll have that as a fixed, you know, portfolio. They're just going to say, oh, I'll track it, I'll buy an ETF, uh, I'll buy the S&P because it's performing well, uh, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. And I've seen what some of my friends have been put into by private bankers and wealth managers. 
and again, they don't understand what they're even trading. And, and that's why the, so much would go wrong. You know, they turn around and they buy hybrid bonds of banks, which give you 7% interest rate, where they don't, under, and, and I used to trade hybrid bonds. They're one of the most complex instruments. Um, and, you know, it's a case of the legal side of it. It's as much a legal document as it is a financial instrument. If the bank doesn't make a profit in two quarters in a row, the coupon gets wiped out and you don't get paid anything. You still keep yeah. the principal. But people think they're sat there as retail investors earning maybe 7%. And they really might not be. Um, so, you know, it just, it, it, it is a cycle that's very, very difficult to say. I think putting money into that system for someone to manage just uh, compounds where we're at because there is a lot of money in the system. But I think if you want to actually make some proper money, you do it by yourself. You learn the mistakes because the mm. same guys that claim to be experts, uh, you know, the same guys that start from nowhere. And when I get people that kind of say, you know, um, teach me how to trade like i can't teach someone how to trade you got to yeah. start off your own accord you Learn turn around to me and, and yeah turn around and then if you know if, if someone you've got to have an idea come to me and then we can start discussing why something might work or fail if someone comes to me and they says oh i want to buy tesla stock i'll tell them to get out of the room um <laughs> but uh you know even even when it was even when it was trading a thousand dollars it was wrong um it, and you know it, it is a case of wrong situations pertain themselves for a very long time but that's a different situation of it so, you know in even amazon right amazon's another example people see the performance of amazon and i get people telling me here they're like oh do you think that's a good investment um and amazon trades at 65 times earning multiple which for an established large company is total total nonsense oh, yeah crazy, um, crazy and, and amazon is up it's like up 35% this year, which is a solid performance. Now, if you're coming to me now and saying, should I buy Amazon? You're wrong. You're behind the curve. You're late. Um, the people that are really smart, are the people that think, you know, where is the puck going to be afterwards, so to speak? Yeah. Um, Long term you know, thinking. The only one that yeah, the only one that yeah. annoys me when people say that now is when people start talking about buying pharma and healthcare stocks for people that might buy, you know, might have a vaccine. I'm like, no. All kinds of people trying to guess the market and, and trying to um, trying to get rich quick and, and, and just guess based on media hype. And I think it's wise to, to educate yourself on how to calculate whether or not a business is, is profitable and whether it's underpriced or overpriced and, and understand everything that you're talking about. So um, for anyone who's listening who doesn't understand what James has been talking about and you want to invest, then maybe do some research before you put your money into a market where you can lose it in, in a split second. So. Um, I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the best example I'd say to look at is, and the best way to make money is always to be contrarian, in my opinion. Um, you know, there is... So when everyone's zigging, you should be zagging. Well, exactly. That's where you make real money. And if you might make a bit of money for a while following a crowd, but eventually, like, you're going to underperform what you could have made, or you're going to lose money when the whole sheep mentality crowd goes wrong. Now, what happened with oil earlier this year was the perfect example um, you know, the oil price collapsed. Then people started talking about OPEC cutting the supply. And the whole thing collapsed because it was political posturing by Russia, Saudi Arabia and China against the US. Now, if you want to be cynical, but it's the truth, um, you know, they are pushing out US fracking producers who are flooding the US market with cheaper oil. So basically, Saudi and Russia can sit there and make a loss on oil like no country in the world is making a profit of $30 a barrel for oil, right? Yeah. They all need $45 minimum. But these countries, because they have the supply, they increase the supply, which is obviously going to crash the price more. 
but they can sustain losses in the oil market for a lot longer than the US and fracking producers. Yeah. So it was a, it was the it was a perfect example of game theory. It was <laughs> yeah. game theory. Yeah, so yeah. you yeah. look at this and then you're everyone's seeing that they they're purposely driving down the price by increasing supply when there isn't the demand because no every, the world's on lockdown, right? So it got to a point and this is again I think a really good example to look at in terms of being contrarian. There started being talk about them coming to an agreement and cutting supply by 10 to 20 million barrels a day globally, OPEC plus, all of the countries coming together, cutting supply. So the market stabilized and everyone started saying, oh, if they cut supply, it's going to be fantastic. Like, you know, that's going to be problem solved. I was short oil at the time when that, and I initially had that same view and I changed my view and I was pretty public about this on social media as well, changing my view because everyone looks in one direction and they're like OPEC, OPEC supply, when's it going to be announced? That's the only headline they're looking for. Yeah. But then everyone needs to look at the next headline and the next headline straight away is, holy shit, there's no demand at all. The demand is like collapsed globally. You can cut supply by 10, 20 million barrels. Who cares? The demand is still not there. Yeah. So you had a point where they did announce the cut and oil collapsed and actually oil futures went to negative. Um, mm -hmm. It was like I oil futures negative, and again, yeah. people couldn't understand why they went negative. Um, and it was again, it, it, it was quite complex. But the whole point is, that's when you buy it. Like you can't lose at that point. That's literally when you buy it, and then it's obviously now rallied up again. But if you want to trade intra markets and do that, then you have to be contrarian and think, well, that might be the case. And you know, there's everyone's simplistically thinking, oh, there's a vaccine, so markets will rally, or oh, there's more stimulus from the ECB, so markets will rally without actually understanding the implications of some Nine. absolute idiot sat in the Federal Reserve that goes and clicks a button and prints $7 trillion of money <laughs> yeah. when the whole US stock market, every single company in the US, is mm -hmm. worth $70 trillion. All you've done is you've basically gone, smashed your children's piggy bank, you've taken their money to pay for your lifestyle today, and that system is very, very close to collapsing, in my opinion. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm so negative on markets right now because of it. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. You've just given uh, the listeners a full economics lecture. And um, <laughs> and I think that the, anybody who doesn't understand that should do, go do some study because it's really interesting information. So, yeah, thank you for the investment side of things for covering that. I think that's really interesting what you've said, and and I'm definitely James, you didn't stop talking. You're I'm not definitely, I'm definitely with you on a lot of what you said. So yeah, but let let's um let's talk a bit more about your entrepreneurial journey to to cover that side of things. So um you spoke about the the, the businesses that you started and your experience in investment banking, and and so then you were at a bar and somebody asked you or mentioned that you travelled to 196 countries. So tell us a bit about the the journey of getting into countries and some of the the most incredible places you've been and um um how you did it i mean how did you know that there was a record first and you wanted to break it or did you just want to because i personally want to travel to all 196 as well um i'm 30 now nice so, yeah actually we're born um a year apart almost exactly I'm, I'm the 29th of december you're the 30th right oh right that is basically almost a year apart yeah did anyone ever come to your birthday or were they like oh, no man. new year's is coming up it was the worst. Hey, it was like, here's a Christmas present and that covers your birthday as well. And, and uh, <laughs> even now, like my friends are usually on holidays when it's my birthday, but that's fine. That's cool. Right, exactly. The exactly. Good, I just and have the ones a... that you would invite out, yeah, they're like, well, no, because I need to save myself for New Year's. Yes, that's exactly right. Quote, unquote. And we also have uh, in Australia, obviously, Australia Day in, in, in January. It's huge. So um, there's just so much partying between 
started December and January. So I got to squeeze my birthday in yeah. there somewhere. So yeah, tell us about the the whole world record thing and how and how that came about. Yeah, so I mean, it, I generally just got carried away and. And I think there was an unofficial record, but there was nothing officially with Guinness. So I kind of set the record um, there, uh, I guess. And yeah, it was, it, it, as I said, you know, if I met 18 year old James, I definitely wouldn't like 18 year old James, probably very naive and, you know, not understanding of things. But, you know, you understand different people, cultures, how to deal with situations and you understand a lot more about yourself as well. Um, yeah. So it, it was an incredible, incredible journey to take. And, you know, I remember when I finished and went into the last country, uh, I didn't really feel anything. I almost felt disappointment that it was kind of over. But what was the, last the, the weird thing is, sorry. What was the last country? Uh, it was Micronesia in the middle of the South Pacific. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, look, you know, it's kind of taken a turn over the last few years. This whole competitive travel of wanting to be the youngest person or the youngest whatever to the you know the first person to do the every country in some senses. And you know, it took me six years. I did it on my own time as well. And um, and now I kind of feel like some people are doing it for the wrong reasons, just to have a record for the sake of it. And honestly, I think I travel more now than I did when I was going to every country. Um, yeah. Because were you, there was were like you just a, a ticking, ticking the box eventually? Yes and no. Yeah. Um, you know, I always spent like at least a couple of days in every place I went to and some more than others, obviously. But if you go to Vatican City or Andorra or Liechtenstein, uh, then it's, you know, you're not going to spend much time there in small countries. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that, now I do get to kind of, I travel more. I mean, I'm always on the road now than, than when I was then. Um, and, and it's the example, I guess, of Micronesia as well, where you turn around and you say, well, look, you know, I went to one island in the country, tick the country, sure, but there's 80 different islands in that country. Because yeah, you've wow. been to Sydney, have you seen Australia? Because you've been to Bangkok, have you seen Thailand? No, not at all. Mm. Um, so, you, you know, it, the title that people might think because they've been to every country that they're so well traveled isn't necessarily the case. Um, and, you know, I guess it was like different parts in terms of where I am now. And, and I certainly try and when people will say to me, Oh, I'm sure you've seen a better waterfall or a more beautiful mountain range. And stuff, I tend not to think like that because I think it's a bit negative. It's the same reason why I don't have a favorite movie or a favorite song because I get pretty bored of it pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, I'd like to kind of appreciate everything for what it really is um and you know for for the moment yeah sure like i might have some amazing beaches or whatever i've seen but i wouldn't compare one to the other necessarily i'll just try and enjoy it and, and i think that's pretty important to to always keeping that you know i guess inspiration in a way for, for for carrying on traveling yeah like each place is has its own unique beauty so like australia has really fine sandy beaches and and the sand is quite yeah fine like i said and and then there's other beaches that have the, the rocky, pebbly sand, but they're also equally as beautiful because they are what they are. So is that where you're yeah, getting, exactly. getting to? And, and also yeah. you change as a per like, you know, Sydney is a good example for me, actually. I, when I first went to Sydney, I was 19. I went for New Year's and I loved it. I loved the yeah. city. And I must have been back six times since. And each time I went back, I liked it less and less to the point where the time before last, I really didn't like Sydney. And I was kind of like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't like it anymore here. And then I went back again last year and I just we fell back in love with the city. Like I really, really did. Like I loved the way that it was. There is so much nature. You can get a boat to so many different like parts of like the bay or the beaches. And like I loved it. Um, and I just, you know, almost rediscovered it. And, you know, I yeah. change and we change as people as we go along. And so something you might not like before, you're like, again, I used to hate olives. 
I love all those. (laughs) It's like reading books too. Like I've read the same book a few times and and each time you read it, you get completely different reading from it because you've had new life experiences, new wisdom come in, you've met new people and and those books are like whole new books. It's so cool. Um, The classic is Think and Grow Rich. I've read that like five times and each time is completely different. So yeah, totally understand. So um, now with Holiday Swap, so you explained a little bit at the beginning of the podcast what it is. Um, so you're traveling around a lot now. It's it's COVID season, Rona season, as people like to call it. Um, yeah. What does what does it entail? Like even when you were doing your world record to get into all these different countries, like a lot of people, even myself, are interested in North Korea and were there more difficult countries to get into than than that? And um, we'll leave it at that before I ask you the next question. So yeah, tell us a bit about how you got around. Yeah, some were pretty, Iraq was difficult. I mean, my timing wasn't great either. I went to Afghanistan when the war was still going on there. So I remember getting picked up by the US military at the border. And North Korea was actually pretty simple when you go through, you know, a guy in Beijing who sorts it all for you. If you if you sit there and nod and say, yes, yes, it's fantastic, uh, then you're not really going to have too many problems. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I didn't really nod too much. So I have problems. I can't go back to North Korea. Um, <laughs> I die if I go back to North Korea. But, uh, you know, um, th- there were tons that were really difficult that you wouldn't expect. Equatorial Guinea, Mauritania. You know, I've seen prison cells in various places around the world and been kept in uh, in places I'd really? rather not see again. Yeah, so... Um, For being naughty you know, or I just, what, just what happened? Uh, various things. Uh, I guess I I got kidnapped, for lack of a better phrase, in Iraq. Um, oh that was fun. We have friends. I don't have Stockholm syndrome much, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's you know, you're, you're an easy target when you know you know you're going into Mauritania or something. And uh, you know, if there's a pro- like if you're not paying bribes to people in some senses and you kind of refuse to do that, then you're going to be an even easier target. So, um, you know, kidnapping you for overall, ransom is is that what was happening? No, that was just, uh, that was saying with, I guess, border authorities, but actually they turned out to be quite good people and we went on a nice little city tour. Um, oh, cool. You know, I tended to, I've tended to find like most people genuinely are really good people. Yeah, there's always going to be like some bad eggs and stuff, but, uh, yeah. you know, relatively around the world. Yeah, there was, uh, but times, times are always changing. I went to Damascus in Syria when it was pretty nice and normal. I went to Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, when there was a civil war, uh, well, not civil war, a coup, a coup d'etat going on. Um, so there was a military t- coup and that was, uh, you know, pretty shady time to be there. And Libya, Libya is another example, right? Libya was always a really difficult uh, country to get into. Right. Um, and you could never go as a tourist. You could only go on business. And so I went, to, I saw an opportunity. Gaddafi basically fell in Libya. And I went two weeks after Gaddafi fell. So, you know, there was just gunfire everywhere. But it was almost happy gunfire. It was, you know, people celebrating Libya's freedom. But the country was a mess, but almost in a positive way where, um, you know, they were positive about opening it up. They were happy to have people come there. They wanted to look at doing further business, etc. So, yeah, in in that sense, it was, uh, you know, my my timing was always pretty poor uh, in in going to certain places. But, uh, yeah, it's um, it was a, a journey for sure. Yeah, cool. Sounds incredible. And um, and did you like have passports? I mean, how how many passports did you have to go through to seven. get all those stamps? Seven. Seven. Do you still have them? Yeah, they're they're mostly full up. Um, pretty pretty full all of them. Yeah, cool. Very cool. So now you're traveling around a lot for holiday swap. So why? Like, what are you what are you currently doing with holiday swap to grow it? And um, 
Uh, what, st- what stage is the business at? Well, why am I traveling around? Um, so I am the founder and CEO, which as I've discovered, means I am the lowest ranked employee in the company. Um, (laughs) You know, if there is some shit to shovel and clean up, there I am. Um, And, you know, I think that any good for anyone that wants to kind of found a company, anyone that turns around and, you know, kind of beats their chest and says, I am the boss, like, you know, I can sit back, someone else can do that. Um, I think that you're destined to not succeed. So, you know, in that sense, uh, it could be anything and everything. And uh, so, you know, some of the kind of meetings I have are, you know, I'm like, what am I doing here? Uh, but, you know, you have to do it. If you want your business to grow and succeed, then that's fine. And look, you know, from from my point, I'm, uh, as you saw when I couldn't even turn my volume on at the start of this podcast, you know, I'm a, as my CTO tells me, and I've known my CTO for 22 years, he says, James, you're a caveman with technology. Um, yeah, I happen to own a half travel, half tech company. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, from, from that, it's a case of, but obviously he's great and has a great team and hopefully does that bit much better than I could ever dream of. Um, you know, from, from my sense, I guess my skills and my strengths to the finance side and the media side too, um, from having done, you know, a lot of that as, as the, you know, when I got the world record, I guess. So, you know, I do a lot of that, a lot of kind of partnerships we do on a, on a higher level with airlines or tourist boards, um, you know, linking them up, getting them on our platform, etc. And a lot of it's finance. A lot of it is our investors. Uh, I'm always speaking to investors. Uh, and for anyone that's done that and raised funds and had fundraising rounds for the company, they'll know that nine out of 10 of those meetings are going to waste your time. Um, yeah. God, I wish I could invoice people for my time wasted. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just got to keep doing it. Um, and, you know, we're three years in now. And when someone tells me they found a company and they're like, hey, like, you know, um, I need to start raising funds and investment. I'm like, <laughs> good luck, um, but don't <laughs> yeah. give up. But good luck. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it is tough because you know the VC space, um, <clears throat> for example, and I know it from from being in investment banking. The majority of VCs are. And I don't really know a better way to say this, but they're sh- they're they're thick as pig shit. And they are cheap. And every VC out there for anyone that's listening that is basically, you know, gets turned down by every VC you go to and starts to doubt yourself, tell them to go fuck themselves. Um, because they don't know what they're doing. They think like sheep and and they are just thinking about lining their pockets. You know, a hot dog stand in New York City is gonna make more money on day one than a potential multi-billion dollar business. That hot dog stand is not scalable and it's not defensible. You get someone that has a better sausage, for example. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, anyway, <laughs> he has better sources, you know, who sets up one down the block or beats him on price or has two hot dog stands, right? It's yeah, easy yeah. to compete. And you look at, you know, these little scooters that you have in all the cities, right? Yeah, totally. Um, you, know, you, you have like six different companies that now do them because the VC funds piled into the space because it was easy money. All they needed was one and a half rides per day and then everything beyond that was profit for them. Yeah. And so it was it was literally foolproof, which is what VCs want because the guys that are making the decisions at most VCs, they have very small loss margins. They lose three to 5% on their portfolio, they get fired. So they're yeah. looking for free money options or for early stage companies to go and take your eyes out what do, you, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen with these scooters? I I uh, went to book one the other day for a bit of fun, and uh, it was cheaper for me to take an Uber, like a like a luxury yeah, well, Uber, ex- than the no, freaking exactly, scooter. The, the, all of them, they are all carving each other to pieces. Same with Uber. I firmly feel Uber will never ever make a profit because Uber's easily replicable. You make an app, you have one guy with a car, you beat them on car quality, driver quality, price, and you compete. And that's why Uber now have so much competition. 
Yeah. Because and they're spending so many dollars on protecting themselves, market share wise, marketing that that becomes a problem for easily replicable companies. And that's human mentality. It goes back to the stock markets. That's why bubbles will always form and bubbles will always pop. Because if it looks easy, if I turn around to someone now and I say, give me a million dollars and I'll give you $2 million in a year, guaranteed every single person is going to do that, right? Yeah. And if you have the numbers on paper that shows that you've grown so quickly to something that is, hey, you know, we spend $10 on making a product and we sell it for 12 and we just need to scale it. So that's where we need VCs. VCs will be all over that. But basically anything that you really think is going to change something positive and, and holiday swap is a network, right? Holiday swap is a network that we built from the ground up. It doesn't matter if we have a hundred thousand houses in Australia. Well, now it does because a lot of domestic travel and regional travel is what we're pushing, but we don't just offer Sydney to Melbourne. We offer Melbourne to, Costa Murray and you know Bali to Perth and like it's just that spiderweb network to build it you just need to be everywhere and everywhere because if you do, search for do you guys do you guys do flight bookings within the app as well, well there, there are adverts for flights on there at the moment but we don't work in terms of actually integrating the flight booking okay. but that is something that we will look at um in the future but the issue I said when I first spoke to VCs with this company was I said, when they asked what our revenue was going to be in year one, I said zero. And I said, and the revenue is going to be zero in year two as well, because you don't build a network and build something that is a true sharing economy by making money on day one. If you sign up and you search for Spain and, you know, think about going back to day one for us, we might have five properties in Spain only, right? You might think Polyswap's rubbish, delete the platform, move on. So we literally needed to build a brand and give this product out to people and actually keep their loyalty on there whilst we kept putting more options for people to be able to say, oh, now I can look at Spain and there's thousands and thousands of properties I can go and match with. How are you, um, how are you getting the properties on there? It, it's, a, it's simple user acquisition, like through multiple platforms. And we do, you know, there's lots of press and, and it's all like usually digital uh, user acquisition, which takes capital, which, you know, so I self-funded it to start with. And I've told a few VCs to go fuck themselves, quote unquote. Sorry for my language on this, but it's just That's all shows good. my it's, emotion. It's, it's, it's a swearing podcast. Well, I, well, oh, so I won't be, I won't be beeped out, no? <laughs> no, no, not unless you want to be, but um, no, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll make a, maybe I'll make a limit for, for, for fucks and shits. And then if it goes yeah, over exactly. that, I'll, I'll try and stay for it. But, <laughs> but you know, it genuinely did illustrate my emotion in terms of, look, you know, these guys turning around thinking they know what to do and, and how, you know, it's really important to remember, I think, for a lot of people that are starting, if you can raise capital either from yourself, ideally, which is what I did, because I didn't want to be privy to these people that don't understand your business. They only care about making returns. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if you can go to people, you know, angel investors, you know, there's plenty of individuals out there that will invest in a company because they see what it's trying to do. And yeah. VCs won't. They will discount your brand your vision and and the founders they will discount them and just look at numbers you know so I what, get to speak are, you, are, you, are you hitting up some rich friends to, to help you out or is it is that the same well, that now was, where, that where was, you need need big vcs well i mean i don't really have any rich friends to be honest so okay. uh, you know at the start like that's why i have to self-fund it because i had to go to people that i knew that might have you know some capital and say well look this is what we've achieved so far um yeah. you know and now it's got to the point where we have vcs coming around a couple have invested but i know the guys personally there um you know one of them invited me to a vc conference where i got on stage and actually you know almost said what i just said i told the whole vc group that they're all idiots uh don't think that went down very well uh but i'm always going <laughs> to say come to right? my, my my conference and and shit on my guests <laughs>
Well, but, you know, but, look, it, it was it was almost like a Shark Tank thing. And I was sat at the back and actually I drank far too much tequila. I wasn't meant to speak on stage the whole time. And then I randomly last minute got asked to go up on stage with a bunch of tequila shots in. And, uh, you know, I, I was hearing these these startups like some of them were really good ideas. And, and the whole thing was it was almost like a Dragon's Den Shark Tank thing where you have VCs and they might invest in these companies coming up on stage. Right. And so, you know, I listened to like, you know, I remember this one girl in particular, and I remember I was ranting on to someone at the back, not shutting up, having tequilas about how VCs get it wrong. And their first question and their only question they care about, what's your revenue? What's your profit? What's your revenue? What's your profit? Non-stop. They don't, they don't give a shit about what you're trying to do and that there's a longer term goal to it. Again, you look at Netflix at the start, who got turned down by everyone, right? Because they were, they were a network. They, they couldn't yeah. afford to buy all the movies and the content until they started getting subscriptions. So it's a slow burner to the point Netflix, where they're now an Netflix absolute... is doing well. Netflix is making their own movies yeah. and, and They're an and absolute beast and... now because... Yeah, they're killing it. Yeah, exactly. But they had to get people on there by... And I know I did it. Most people probably did as well. You There might be something you want to watch. You put in an email, get a free month trial, cancel it, use another email when you wanted to watch something else. Now it's got to the point where there's enough good content that because they've got the capital coming in to, to actually be able to say, yeah, we can pay for those movies, we can make our own content where you're more than happy to say, yeah, sure, I'll pay a hundred bucks a year for a Netflix subscription, no problem. Um, but they got a hard time at the start because no one wanted to sit there and say, okay, we believe in the idea and the vision, but we can see you're not gonna make money for a few years really. And, yeah. and and people don't like that. Well, stupid people don't like that. But people that believe in what you're doing and you know individuals and angels and stuff, they'll be on board with it and uh, and it's about picking the right people. So, and again, it comes back to this, this, this conference I was speaking on. And I heard this girl, she had a great idea and she came up on stage and she got ripped to pieces because they were just straight away. Like the first question, what's your revenue to her? And it's it's mindless in, in my opinion. So yeah. uh, I think Jeff Bezos said it quite well. He said, look, when I stopped investing in companies because of just the numbers purely and started investing because I believed in what they were doing, I started making much bigger returns as well. Now, yeah. I don't necessarily agree that far to one side, but I think there's a middle ground. Yeah, I think it's great to do your due diligence and. Uh, but also, obviously, when you've got a great a great founder and they've got the right attitude, and uh, you can tell that they've the invested some of their own time and money and work ethic, then you know it's a good it's a good buy. Um, there's probably a lot more to it, but, but yeah, I get what you're saying, and I totally and I agree. I think that what the point that you're raising is fantastic, and it's good for anyone out there who's starting something who um, who gets told no a hundred times. Like in Australia, we have uh, Mel Melanie Perkins, I think her name is. She's um she's the founder of Canva. Have, you know Canva, the the creative app she, we use she's, Canva. she's from australia and she was told no a hundred times by silicon valley vc so look at her now she's one of the youngest um tech billionaires in in the world so good on her yeah, for persevering yeah i mean it, it really is the case you know everyone's even if you look at 1999 in amazon right there was an article that someone published out saying amazon.bomb saying it was you know you can't sell other people's stuff on the internet you need to sell your own product and after <laughs> yeah. this article came out in 1999 over the next two years, Amazon stock was down nearly 80%. And yeah. so imagine, you know, most people are going to be like, oh, no, like we're done. Honestly, like, I don't want to swear again, but yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Um, you, you haven't hit your limit. But yeah, I think, I think that's, <laughs> that, that's cool. So, you, so you're traveling around um, uh, pitching to investors. Uh, what else are you doing whilst you're traveling around? And, and what's, what's, um, what, can we expect from, um, what can we expect from Holiday Swap in the next kind of couple of years? Uh, I mean, I, I'm mostly working remotely when I'm traveling around as well. So, you know, I'm lucky enough that I get to mix up my setting, which is great. You know, we, we have people that work in lots of different countries and we have lots of partners in different countries. So 
you know, I seem to be spending a lot of time recently just like feeding my belly and drinking at, at dinners <laughs> and stuff and work dinners, which I'm not complaining and having, about. And having slammers, slammers on planes. Yeah, slammers as that. well on planes. Yeah, exactly that too. Tell um, us the slammer story. So, so are they not serving um, drinks or food on planes now? It depends on the airline. Uh, airlines that basically are lying to you that say they're saving, uh, uh, that they're, they're saving your lives um through safety uh lying uh, i think um the ones that are because most airlines there's a lot of good airlines that are serving for full service still qatar etihad um even british airways now are doing it but british airways didn't for a while and the the irony of the situation is that, again everyone's got an opinion and i'm not a scientist and most people aren't but tell, uh, tell, so tell, the audience, tell the audience what you're doing it's hilarious i was watching on your stories the the slammers but, but it's, I mean, it's, it's just a case in terms of the airlines that aren't doing it. Like they're serving soft drinks and, and packaged food, no, but, but not what, alcoholic what, what, But what you were doing, you were putting the alcohol in the in the little bottles. Oh, yeah. Well, I had uh, 100 milliliter bottles so I could get it through in my handbag. And so I just filled up a bunch of those and took a plastic glass. With champagne. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, plenty of airlines I've been on over the last couple of months are still serving alcohol. Um, yeah. And again, it's, you know, a lot of people like to have a drink when they fly, right? And it's it, it's completely nonsensical to me that, I mean, the scientist geniuses at some airlines think that a Diet Coke, serving you a Diet Coke doesn't spread coronavirus, but serving you a can of beer would. Like, that's just blatant cost cutting. It yeah. doesn't matter what you think about, you know, safety and the virus and whatever. You cannot say that a can of soft drink is different to a can of beer, for example um in terms of how it, it, it's so blatant as clear as day so you know the ones that have been doing that yeah i've been forced to take on my own drink sneakily in some instances <laughs> it's hilarious uh good times yeah if anybody doesn't follow james go and follow him it's hilarious um all right cool so yeah so what, what can we expect from holiday stop in the next couple of years what are you excited about obviously things have taken a turn with with our rona season um what are you guys up to behind the scenes what can you share I mean, we've still been growing during coronavirus by user numbers. And, and a lot of people now are seeing in, in, you know, the US and, you know, even in like New Zealand, particularly and Europe, like a lot of people are doing domestic trips still and regional trips. And I think that that's, you know, I hate the term the new normal, but I think particularly for you guys down in Australia and New Zealand, you are going to have a little bubble probably until there is a vaccine. Uh, oh, you we'll took see. a different path with that. So, you know, with that kind of stuff, like it's certainly like, you know, key for us to be offering you know, a, you know, if it's a trans-tasm bubble, for example, to people, um, and this is in, I guess, the next six months to a year. Um, but I think because we are super low cost and a lot of people are now really, really struggling, uh, it's uh, it's something that that's why I guess we've been growing and why hopefully we'll continue to because people really resonate with, hey, like I want to get away. I'm going mad in my home. Like, you know, screen time is up, but I need to save money. So, so you know, for us, it's a case of, also, I was just yeah. gonna. I was just gonna ask, how are you guys making money? Because when when somebody pays to stay in another person's home, it's a dollar, US dollar. So how do you guys it's make a, money? It's a dollar. It's a dollar a night. So you know, oh, if we're gotcha. working on big yeah. scale, which we are, um, and pushing that scale up, yeah. um, it works, uh, and it works for us. So you know, that's that's where we've kind of priced it. We think that's fine, and uh, you know, people can subscribe for a year as well, which kind of allows unlimited swaps or unlimited hosts, and you can have like insurance cool. to protect against your property. So, um, you know, there's there's plenty of ways, obviously, like traditional, like lots of technology companies, there's adverts as well. Uh, you're not gonna see any painful adverts in your face. They're all related to what we think you'd wanna see. So, um, yeah. you know, travel guides or cheap flights if we see you keep looking at london yeah sure we might be showing you Qantas or 
uh, British Airways flights if they're uh, if they're good pricing. So, you know, it, it is it's it's a network. It's as much a, a, a travel booking platform as it is even a social media platform in some ways. You know, we find a lot of people now, particularly millennials, college students, they come on a holiday swap and they might not even plan to travel to next year, but they want to find a cool place similar to theirs. They can match within Paris, Sydney, Cape Town, New York, and so they know that they've got all these places that when they want to travel, they can do so. You know that still translates to traffic on what we're doing, and you know there's there's been a lot of work that's gone into it as any company would have, and and it really is a case I think the next couple of years of we just want to keep growing. We've got a couple of exciting things um, mm-hmm. that we're working on as well, uh, but growth is is the main main part of it uh, uh, right awesome. now, and just offering people more and more places. Yeah, yeah, super cool. So um, with the properties, can can we put properties on there if we're renting, or is it only if you're owning a property? That's the whole aspect of why we think that we are good, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. Um, you know, uh, Airbnb has 175 million users and 2 million hosts, and they push property prices up, rent prices. They're not liked in lots of places, I guess, because of it, maybe. Uh, that's not my words. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a case of, yeah, you, you cannot host if you, own your, if you don't own your place and you rent because it's subletting, which is illegal yeah. under most contracts. But because there's no money exchanged between users on Holiday Swap, uh, everyone can use it. If you rent, if you want to put your sofa on there, cool. If you want to put your room, your penthouse, your villa, uh, your studio apartment, whatever you have, you can put on there. We had someone that put a yacht on there recently huh, in awesome. the Caribbean, actually, to swap. So, so cool. you know, it is whatever you want to swap. And, and yeah, because there isn't that financial transaction, everyone can use it, even if you rent. So we think that we are, you know, open and available to a much broader audience, too. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, cool. And what else is there anything else you want to tell us about about travel or um, business or investing or the whole entrepreneurship journey that you've been on? Because it sounds like there's been lots of incredible ups and experiences. Um, and you've you, you've said somewhere that, you know, almost somebody in every corner of the world. Uh, and you've also had a lot of um, challenges with VCs, with traveling with. So what's your what's your life advice? Um. Fuck it, do it. <laughs> like, you know, it, it, again, and, and this is something I, I remember really well when I first kind of started the company. I had this mentality kind of cynically, I guess, in a way where I kept saying to myself, like, give yourself a year, like literally a year left to live. That's it. Like, and try and put yourself in that mentality. Yeah. Like so many problems that you think are problems right now, you'll just think, you know what, fuck it, um, do it you know oh is it is it a risk what are people going to say like are people going to judge me if you're like imagine you have like a year you're just going to be like whatever i'm going out anyway and quite honestly cynically we're all going out we're all ending up in the same place um so you may as well just do it as long as you got like that hard work ethic morals in the right place um then you're not an asshole about things then uh go and do it and and don't let anyone tell you that you can't Uh, because everyone so many people have tried everyone said i couldn't go to every country every single person um, yeah. They said that's impossible, uh, but um, and you did you know, it by twenty four. Yeah, but you know, again, I really genuinely did that for my for myself and uh, and, and my own reasoning. And, and I think a couple of it wasn't even for a couple of years after that. But I wasn't on social media or anything. Still, um, I just wanted a quiet life, and I really kind of did it for myself rather than hey, look, I've done some traveling. So um, yeah, yeah, look, I, I mean, just just do it. I guess. Now I sound like Nike. They're probably going to sue me for copyright. But uh, yeah, just do it. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. And um, what's your legacy, James? What, what do you want people to remember, remember you for once you're gone, once you leave the planet? 
at making a positive change. Like I don't want to be remembered for money or any of that kind of stuff. You know, I use my platform how I can um, to better it. I don't do the paid sponsored posts or anything on my Instagram. Um, I know that some people do and that's fine. But for me, you know, I want to use it to actually say what I like, say what I don't like. Uh, sure, it, it can get me into trouble with some companies, but I really couldn't care less. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if someone's falling short, I want to call them out on it in a, in a, in a way that hopefully isn't like an arsehole, but there's too much positivity. I think it's pop, like toxic positivity on social media now that everyone's like, oh, like, you know, everything that's good is an advert and anyone would say anything for a free stay or a free something. And I think that there needs to be a little bit more honesty and two-sided opinion. So, you know, I really want to want to kind of push that more. You know, I use my platform for stuff with UNICEF. I've, I've been to Yemen a few times because that's a horrendous humanitarian crisis there. And that was really dangerous when I went back there a year ago too. Yeah, um, why, 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 but, are you so, why are you so invested in Yemen? Because you have a charity charity there or a char- charity that helps Yemen. So tell the audience Because no one else that. really cares. Um, there's no embassies left there. Like the media aren't there because it's too dangerous. And, you know, 350,000 people have died there. Um, yeah. you know, so what's, what's going on years. in Yemen? And what are you doing I to mean, help? It's, it, I delivered supplies there last year. I, you know, I raised some money by going as well. But again, you compare it to, you know, what people might raise for for other causes, which are still worthy. Um, it's still so forgotten, and it's forgotten by the media because you know it's back to like Darfur, I guess, in the '90s and early 2000s, and people see starving children. They're like, that's really sad. But mm. you know, that's the other side of the world. Um, you know, and a lot of people say it's sad and will do something, but most people say it's sad and not help or do anything and you know it's an easily preventable crisis it's a cholera crisis in yemen right now it's a it's a it's a i think 18 million people 80 percent of the country uh is on the brink of famine um you know and it's really difficult to see and that's the kind of stuff that i want to actually use my platform to highlight and when you kind of say about legacy yeah like it shouldn't be about me it should genuinely be about if i've got a platform that i can use then do it for other things and things that actually mean something rather than, you know, hey, like I've got X amount of Lamborghinis. That gets pretty boring after a two minute conversation. Um, yeah, that's so, it. that's incredible yeah. to think that there's a country that's suffering so much. But there's there's Western world with, you know, Australia has a minimum, uh, sorry, an average wage of 80,000 a year. So it's just absolutely crazy and hard to fam- to, f- to fathom. So it's great that you're yeah. you're showing that on your platform to your million plus followers so that they can see what's what's going on and where where we're not so blessed where other people aren't so so lucky absolutely yeah cool all right well i think what you're doing james is fantastic everyone listening go check him out he's a great guy he's doing great things uh he does lots of travel so you get to live vicariously through him at the moment um but yeah thank you james so much for coming on the podcast thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed chatting thank you so much Thanks for listening to Trillions with me as your host, Elise Grace. Please do me a favor and drop me a review on iTunes or if you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe. Would love to hear your feedback. Reading your reviews and comments keeps me inspired to keep creating the best interviews possible. If you want to stay up to date with all my movements, please check me out on social media at Elise Grace.